Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If 19th century America had an aristocracy, Alexis de Tocqueville observed, it was not the rich who had no common tie except having money. It was lawyers and judges. As a new nation, Americans looked up to the law to provide the social cohesion that grew out of common heredity or centuries of tradition in older countries. When that social cohesion came apart in 1861, lawyers played a critical role in trying to restore it or creating a new southern nation. We'll learn more about what they did during the war from Professor Peter Charles Hoffer, author of Uncivil Warriors, The Lawyer's Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building 
on the campus of East Carolina University at the home office of Civil War Talk Radio. But to be precise, let me point out that the opinions and ideas offered or expressed in the following program are those of the speakers and not those of the third floor of the Brewster Building, its environs, or uh, I'm just trying to make up a long on-the-spot legal definition here because we're talking about lawyers tonight. Uh, But as always, I speak for myself, not for ECU or anybody else, East Carolina University or state of North Carolina, UNC system, none of those. And my guest likewise speaks only for himself as we always do, as tonight we will be talking the legal talk. Uh, It is October of 2018. The hurricane season is upon us. We've already had to change the schedule this past uh, month of several Civil War talk radio programs. And our guest tonight is uh, teaches at the University of Georgia and is in the path of Hurricane Michael. Hopefully his connection will stay up tonight and uh, the hurricane uh, will not hurt anyone listening to the program or anyone for that matter, even those not listening. Send our best wishes out to all of you who might be encountering that bad weather, which is also on its way up here to North Carolina uh, in a day or two to add to the flooding from last month's hurricane. So... Uh, All in all, clearly, uh, the weather is trying to tell us something. Uh, I, myself, just back from uh, a weekend at home, fall break, uh, home meaning the ancestral home up in Michigan, visiting the number one fan of Civil War talk radio, my mother, who is uh, unfortunately no longer listening to the shows because uh, she's now at the point where navigating stairs is no longer practical, and so she stays uh, with the caretaker on the first floor of her house, and the computer's in the basement. Now, one might ask, why not move the computer up to the main floor where she could listen to the show? But that would require moving something within the house, and Mom at 97 does not hold with moving anything within the house. Uh My brothers and I still do so anyway. Uh, Others in the house taking care of her will move things around for her benefit. But uh, if something as dramatic and visible as a computer moving from one room to another, not going to happen. It was, however, a pleasure to be home, I'll say, over the past weekend and watch the team of my childhood, the Detroit Lions, uh, thoroughly beat the Green Bay Packers, our longtime nemesis. The Lions have not won the National Football League Championship in my lifetime, and I'm turning 60 years old in two days. Uh, It was Bobby Lane's team in 1957 that last brought the NFL title to Detroit, and I was born the following year. So I don't anticipate that changing in my lifetime, but uh, it was fun to see the, the Lions beat the Packers. One more related note, while driving back from Raleigh-Durham Airport to Greenville, uh, I I chose not to fly out of Greenville this time, so I had a late-night drive across eastern Carolina, and the opportunity to listen to almost nothing on the radio, it's a radio desert out there around Wilson uh, between Raleigh and Greenville, so I found myself listening to sports talk radio and late-night political talk radio and thinking about civil war talk radio I, I didn't choose the name for the show I inherited it 
and the last night really made me question it. Sports talk radio apparently consists of giving extremely uh, uh, what convict conviction-filled opinions delivered with with absolute uh, uh, determination and certitude that they are correct and that they are black and white. There was no question. If we did the show that way, you know, McClellan, clearly the worst general in the history of all generals. What was he thinking in the seven, day, seven days? I, you know, why did Lincoln leave him in there? I did. There's just no, and so on like that. With such importance as if any of that mattered at all. As a huge sports fan, I'm aware none of it matters at all. And yet they're so, so into it. Uh, that was striking. The other talk, the political talk radio, it was just crazy town. Uh, that was just off the planet. Uh, so we're called Civil War Talk Radio, and I assure every prospective guest, it's not like real talk radio. Well, you can prove that to yourself by listening to future shows. Uh, if this one doesn't veer off into crazy town or smack talk, and I don't think we will, uh, next week we'll have Lee Elder joining us with a book about Hilliard's Legion at Chickamauga. Uh, called That Bloody Hill. We'll talk to Christopher Stowe, the uh, department head of the War Studies Department at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. Uh, He also leads Civil War battlefield trips and trains officers using the war as an example. And then on the 31st of October here in 2018, we'll have two public historians, Tim Talbot from the Pamplin Park Historical Park, Pamplin Historical Park, and Elizabeth Parnitza from uh, Chancellorsville uh, Visitor Center at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park with an interview I recorded with them last summer at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. If you haven't signed up for that, you will really enjoy it if you go. It's June 14th through 19th in 2019. Look into it. And uh, a couple more shows. Uh, November 7th, Jennifer Murray has a study of Gettysburg National Military Park called On a Great Battlefield. It's a history of the the park itself from 1933 to 2013. And keeping with Gettysburg on November 14th, Jeffrey Hunt's book, Mead and Lee After Gettysburg, the forgotten final stage of the Gettysburg campaign, July 14 to 31. So we go from giant topics, today we'll look at the whole war, to some micro topics. Uh, you can always find out what's going on at Civil War, uh, at, at impedimentsofwar.org, or the Impediments of War Facebook page. Mark Gaffney does a fine job keeping things going there. You can also find a PayPal button on impedimentsofwar.org. Push the button, it will I'll show you how you can easily contribute money to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which is used for books or anything else. It's not tax deductible. It's just for me. Tonight, our guest is Peter Charles Hoffer, the Distinguished Research Professor of History at the University of Georgia, who has written about uh, what he calls uncivil warriors, the lawyers' civil war. I'm always uh, anxious to, to Roll out the lawyer jokes, talk lawyer talk. Uh, here's our opportunity. Maybe we'll keep the jokes out this time. Uh, Professor Hoffer, are you there? I am here. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I almost said Hineni. Sorry. 
Uh, I'm sorry? Well, I mean, it's a biblical reference, and I know you were driving through Bible country. Oh, very much so. some of that. There was, yeah. yes. I, I, there, that's another late-night uh, radio staple, certainly, are the, uh, uh, the preachers uh, going at it hot and heavy, and I, I kind of passed over those. Uh, is everything all right weather-wise where you are? Uh, are you in the path of the hurricane? Oh, yeah, it's, it's hitting us. In fact, um, I have in hand, I'm on a landline, but if the landline goes, which it might, I have a cell phone handy as a backup. Oh, I, I did want to say one thing. I'm yes. a Cleveland Browns rooter. Oh, my goodness. And, and we go back to Frank Ryan. I mean, <laughs> we won't even discuss Brian Sype and that terrible pass, but I'm still waiting for a winning season. Well, I, I feel your pain. Uh, the, the Mayfield era is upon us. The uh, two wins yeah, already good. this season. It, it's fun to watch. Yeah, but the refs have stolen already two games from us. It's embarrassing. It, it is tough. It, it's well. We could talk the old, uh, old school NFL, the Lions and Browns, uh, Jim Brown and Alex Karras, uh, at great length. But we should probably move on. Uh, <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> um, let me just start. I, I challenged the title of my own show a minute ago. Let me challenge the title of your book, Uncivil Warriors. When I finished it, I thought this should be called Civil Unwarriors because it, yeah, it seems I, to be I one tried of the, the, that. The, <laughs> um, when you write a book, you supply a title. Right. And um, the marketing department of the, the publisher then supplies its own title. And uh, guess whose title is on the front piece of the book? That's how it goes. Um, yes, that's uh, how it, it goes. It, I tried, by the way, for you know, civil warriors, um, all sorts of things, and they just liked uncivil warriors. It it, it sounded right to them. Um, they were warriors in a sense. I mean, they had a passion right. um, for the cause. But they were also lawyers, and that meant that um, they were very practical on both sides. Mm-hmm. The, the difference is that the, the lawyers of Lincoln's cabinet, for example, stayed in the cabinet, where they were replaced by other lawyers, um, Bates by Speed, for example. But mm-hmm. um, Jefferson Davis's lawyers went off to fight. I mean, uh, the Confederacy would have been a, a different different place if the Cobbs hadn't decided that they wanted to wear uniforms. And I mean, the spectacle of, of Howell Cobb in a uniform should have deterred them. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting point you make, uh, referring back to the Sumner Brooks uh, altercation, that, that part of Southern gentlemanly culture was to vindicate one's honor with violence and and to to accept a cabinet role rather than being a general is maybe not quite quite uh, honorable enough. Well, you know, the man who stood behind Preston Brooks as he hammered uh, Sumner into insensibility was a man mm-hmm. named Kite, another uh, South Carolina congressman, and he died um, at Fredericksburg. So, I mean. Um, they were serious about it. They thought that the, the honor of the Confederacy, I keep saying it's not the South. There were, there were southern states that didn't join the Confederacy. As far as I can tell, Maryland is a southern state. 
And it was not part of the Confederacy. Of course, it was occupied by Union troops, and that mm-hmm. prevented it from joining the Confederacy. But um, Kentucky um, is, as far as I can tell, we folks in Georgia think of Kentucky as part of the SEC. Mm-hmm. And it's a southern state. It wasn't part of the Confederacy. So it's a Confederacy. So when I talk about uh, lawyers, um, I talk about the Confederate lawyers and the, the federal lawyers or the Union lawyers, mm-hmm. but not the North and the South. I, th- I think that's an important distinction, and not just a lawyerly one. This is slightly off topic from what you write about directly, but I find myself frequently modifying to say the white South believed this or that as opposed to the South, because clearly there were 4 million out of 11 million people who did not automatically share the majority opinion. And, well, and not just we slaves, tend- but also free blacks. And exactly. there were Indians. Mm-hmm. And they tend not to. They, when you just say the South, it assumes the White South's opinion speaks for all, and that's, that's not right. obviously that's, um, historically accurate. Uh, well, there, there are so much. Uh, there, there's a lot here about lawyers that I think many listeners may not have thought about. There are things I certainly had not thought about. Uh, and you opened with the, the comment about the, the competing nature of the cabinets of Lincoln and Davis. Uh, we're going to take a short break and come back, but I want to open by uh, asking you more about that, the uh, the way in which those cabinets functioned and, and how legal culture played a role in that. So we'll come right back in a moment, talking tonight with uh, Peter Charles Hoffer, author of Uncivil Warriors, The Lawyer's Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Charles Hoffer, author of Uncivil Warriors, The Lawyer's Civil War. Uh, Professor Hoffer, can I call you Peter? Is that uh, uh, appropriate? Why not? Given that we have, we have not been <laughs> we have not been formally introduced, I don't know if I, I'm sure I've no, heard you no, at a conference. No. There but, is some uh, there is some debate on campuses, you know, whether or not students should call you by your first name. And I always tell them they can call me by my first name, Professor. Excellent. <laughs> I'm, I may I'm going to use that one. That uh, I, I like that. <laughs> the um, the. Uh, chapter about the cabinets, I, I wanted to raise that question. Every, everyone listening to the show is familiar with uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's work, Team of Rivals, uh, showing Lincoln's cabinet consisting of uh, you know, powerful Republicans, uh, rivals for the presidency even. But you yes, make the argument that... There were two Democrats in the, in the uh, cabinet, and she seems to have missed that. <laughs> well, well you, you go... You you take a slightly different tack and characterize them as as a law firm or a law partnership. Uh, That's right. In it's both in the way they function. Law partnership with Lincoln as the senior partner. How, what do you mean by that? Can you give an example of that well, operation? Well, if if uh, they like a law firm, like the old partnerships, mm-hmm. um, they met often. Um, there was a free and full discussion. Um, Chase and, and um, I think uh, Wells sometimes thought that Lincoln listened too much to Seward. Um, Chase wanted to talk more, but I mean, they function as um, uh, a group, and they're sort of group think. And the way that they do that is they play with it the way lawyers play with, with issues in front of them. And so many of the issues that they faced were actually legal issues. I mean, secession is a legal question. Mm-hmm. Was secession illegal? Was it legal? I mean, what means could you take to suppress it? Um, those are fundamentally legal questions. And Lincoln understood that. Uh, Salmon Chase understood that. Uh, William Seward understood that. They all understood that. Whereas if you look at um, Jeff Davis's, I guess I, I should call him Jefferson, because um, I don't want him angry at me. He was a dualist. Um, yes. He had great legal talent, but he didn't use it. Uh, Alexander Stevens, who was as fine a legal mind as you could find in Antebellum America, went home. His home was just a little, you know, a few miles away from where I am right now. He went home. Wasn't much use. Uh, Judah Benjamin, uh, his legal talents ended up, he was the, ended up being Secretary of the Treasury. Um, but, you know, there weren't regular cabinet meetings. The government didn't function that way. And, um, 
Actually, the best legal mind was uh, Tom Cobb. And he was probably the one who had most to do with drafting the Confederate Constitution. And then as soon as he can, he goes back to Athens and raises Cobb's legion. And off to the um, battlefield. So, um, you have legal talent, you've got to use it as legal talent. Uh, the same is true, of the, you're talking about the chapter that's called The Tale of Two Cabinets. Yes. Sorry, Dickens can't sue me for violating <laughs> anything. Um, but, um, you know, you have the same thing in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, the Confederate Congress had some fine legal talents and didn't do very much. But the United States Congress uh, did quite a lot. And if you follow the debates about the Confiscation Act, or which is, a, again, a legal question, what can we take, um, what can we keep, what can we confiscate, what is contraband, and so on, those are all topics that are discussed by the lawyers in the Congress. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, they don't discuss the Emancipation Proclamation. It's a wartime act by a commander-in-chief. But they do discuss the 13th Amendment. And again, there you see back and forth um, by Democratic Party and Republican Party lawyers, uh, really brilliant, uh, probably never duplicated, uh, mm -hmm. legal theorizing. But, so, um, yeah, um, you've got to make use of your lawyers. I think the example you give of process within the Lincoln cabinet uh, at the very beginning of the war when Seward writes his famous memo to Lincoln proposing, you know, we've been at, it, been at this for a month and there's no policy yet. Here's what I propose. I'm willing to do it myself. And we've all seen that as, as Seward trying to be the power behind the throne. But you make an interesting point about how Link, how that memo is structured and how Lincoln responds to it. Uh, in well, Lincoln responds to it. I mean, mm -hmm. he respects Seward. Seward was a legal innovator in New York as a governor and then as a senator, but mostly as a governor. Before that, he'd had a very fine legal career. Now, Lincoln was no slouch. Mm -hmm. Lincoln was a railroad lawyer. That's how you made your money. And he was a fine state legislator. I mean, he, he knew law backwards and forwards, even though he uh, didn't have a, a law degree. He just read the law. Most folks did. <laughs> but he respected Seward. So when he got that memo from Seward, he, he sat down, he thought about it. He said, well, you know, the Secretary of State, we forget this, but the Secretary of State sort of is like the nation's clerk. Um, he handles lots of, lots of materials. Now we just think of him as a diplomat. <laughs> so, um, that memo in context was not as um, uh, inappropriate as it might seem. Mm -hmm. Lincoln replied to it and said, you know, I've thought about what you said. Um, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I will take the lead on this. You have to be patient and so on. So he handled Seward. Oddly enough, when you get to um, the second half of Lincoln's administration, it's Seward who's the moderate. And Lincoln, who had started off being very conciliatory, what I call a defender of the old constitution of limited federal government and states' rights, mm -hmm. uh, it's Lincoln who becomes uh, much more radical. And, and by that time in the war, they're, they are certainly conversing with each other. They go for carriage rides together. But in that first memo exchange, uh, you make the point that they write to each other, these 
you know, Seward's detailed memo and Lincoln's point-by-point response, even though Lincoln could have walked over to Seward's office in two minutes, he chose to write uh, it. Oh, yeah, uh, walk across the street. As um, two lawyers exchanging briefs, almost. Well, well, exchanging lawyer notes. Exchanging you know, memoranda, brief, yeah. Well, you, you know this. A brief is right. something you file with court. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, in a way, these are briefs. Uh, because they, they go point by point, and the legal issue is, what do we do about Sumter? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, lawyers exchange notes all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one way that you, you don't want to face someone face-to-face right away, because, you know, tempers can flare. So you write a note, and then you get a note back, and then you write a note to that. Um, that way you don't end up <laughs> walking up behind <laughs> someone hitting them with a cane. <laughs> it, 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 and uh, the phenomenon of the, the memo, the, there was a form in, in law school, people are trained, uh, you, you, you have the facts, the law, the recommendation. You, you, uh, I don't remember the exact format of the four-part memo. I knew yeah, it it's well at one time. Lawyering. Yes, uh, it's the most boring <laughs> That is true. Um, no, we we, we uh, uh, now is the time writing uh, letters of recommendation for students who want to get into law school. Mm-hmm. And what I tell them is, um, think about this. You you really want to um, practice law because that's what you're going to do. Uh, you may get a government job. You may go on to teach, but likely you're going to practice law. Is that what mm-hmm. you want to do? Good, good I get, advice. I get stares back. <laughs> I, I should ask, because I ask most guests this about your own background. Did you venture into the law before history? I did a year at Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. The problem is that you have to decide. Now, I was already immature. I was in my 40s. Mm. And I had a family to support. And I had a job here. Mm-hmm. Um, and would I be willing, because... Georgia wasn't going to give me three years off. They gave me a year. Right. So I had that, and I had to decide, do I come back here and uh, take back what I've learned and everything else? And I love law school, and I've taught mm-hmm. law school. I've taught it um, taught here, and mm-hmm. I taught at Rutgers Camden, where my wife was a law professor for 25 years. Mm. So, And my older son got his degree, uh, got his uh, J.D. at Harvard, and... Uh, uh, He's now teaching history at Seton Hall, so he <laughs> went all the way through and then went and got a Ph.D. at Hopkins and he's teaching history. So go figure. You really well, have to want to practice law. And I love that. I love the, the intellectual milieu. I think law professors are some of the smartest people on the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess next to the, you know, the scientists. But... Um, you really have to want to practice law, and in the end, I wanted to teach history and not practice law. I can identify with that certainly, but and I, my recollection of law school, my own experience there was that it is very extraordinarily stimulating uh, uh, and much more rigorous than undergraduate history study or even his graduate history study. In in, in my own experience, uh, you were with a lot of really smart people. Yeah, law school, um, at one time, I guess when the, the legal realists were in their heyday, 
in the mm-hmm. late 1920s, 1930s, into the 1940s, in places like Yale and Penn and Harvard, it was exciting. It was mm-hmm. like a new world, a brave new world for, for uh, the law profession. Now there's been a turn back to the clinical, mm-hmm. um, you know, teaching people how to practice law. Uh, yeah. There are still seminars, there are still, you know, constitutional law and stuff like that. But they, um, the ABA has been pressuring them, and the American Association of Law Schools has been pressuring the law schools, and they've turned back to clinical education. And you wonder, do they belong in universities if they're going to just focus on, hey, you need to pre- pass the bar exam? Interesting. That, uh, And as we said a minute ago about Lincoln, he did not have a legal education other than what he he taught himself. He just read it himself. Um, Bringing it back to Lincoln, uh, you have a very interesting chapter about his relationship with the Supreme Court and and, uh, Roger Taney as a circuit justice and and ex parte Merriman. That's a case name that most listeners have heard. They've seen in a textbook or you know, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, you come across, oh yeah, ex parte Merriman, that's a big case. Uh, can you refresh uh, our memory what, what that one was about and, and yeah, why well, it was so Merriman important? Yeah, well, Merriman is a, uh, he's an important person in, in Baltimore, in local politics. Mm-hmm. He's also a states' rights guy. He's Democrat. And um, he's agitating in Maryland, and this is um, in April, he's agitating for uh, Maryland to join the Confederacy. Um, including telling people to um, take up arms. So Lincoln has him arrested by um, provost marshal. So he's uh, held in a, uh, he's actually held in a fort uh, under a military commission. I know that sounds familiar after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what he does is his lawyer um, brings a, uh, a petition for a writ of habeas corpus to the Federal Circuit Court. Now, at that time, circuit courts, we think of them as appellate courts, which they become mm-hmm. after 1891. Um, but at this time, they are, they are trial courts for serious federal offenses. And they are presided over by a uh, Supreme Court justice on circuit and the sitting um, district court judge. So the, the court to which this um, uh, petition for writ of habeas corpus comes is the circuit court sitting in the District of Maryland. And the justice who sits with uh, that court is Chief Justice Tawney. Chief Justice Tawney was a Democrat, he's associated with Jackson, he served Jackson's administration, he's been uh, Chief Justice of the United States now for 30 years at that time, in 1861, and he is furious, he's beside himself. Not just because, I mean, he knows Merriman, he knows the family, and so on, but the idea that where the civil courts are in session, and they are in session, I mean, regular courts are meeting in Maryland, yes. Um, it's not a battleground, mm-hmm. except in Newt Gingrich's fiction. Um, mm-hmm. He is upset that Lincoln is going to apply uh, military law. And he writes an opinion, and he leaves it with it. He goes down there by train. Um, he holds court. 
he, he writes an opinion and it goes back to Washington, D.C. It's that opinion that um, attacks Lincoln for um, disregarding the, the Constitution. Lincoln then writes a reply, and he has his attorney general, Edward Bates, who was a Democrat, but a Union Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, Unionist Democrat, write a reply. And you get that back and forth of what you can do in war. Now, Congress can always suspend, in, in time of civil insurrection, Congress can suspend um, habeas corpus. It can say, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you can't ask why you've been imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And Congress goes ahead and does this, but it does it long after ex parte Merriman. So here you have Lincoln, who says, um, if I don't do this, I've lost the Union. Maryland goes out, Kentucky will follow, the border states will follow, Missouri will follow, and the United States, as it existed, is over. Um, so in practical terms, I can't let this guy run around free. Now what happens is actually they release um, uh, Merriman. He's tried in a federal court. He's not convicted of anything. And he goes on to a successful career in Maryland politics after the war. Hmm. But it's a a remarkable It's a remarkable constitutional exchange. Tony is no slouch. And Lincoln proves himself a very able interpreter of the Constitution. Well, and it that's is the sort of thing. I'm sorry. I'd say we're we're coming up on a break, so I'm going to step in for just a moment. And uh, but certainly agree, it's one of the most remarkable constitutional confrontations between a president and a Supreme Court justice, even one sitting uh, on a circuit court, uh, over the relative power of the executive and judicial branches, especially in such a, a critical time. What we'll do now is take another short break. Come back and talk more with our guest tonight. Peter Charles Hoffer, author of Uncivil Warriors, The Lawyer's Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Peter Charles Hoffer, author of Uncivil Warriors, The Lawyer's Civil War. We were talking in the last segment about the ex-party Merriman case where a uh, Maryland rebel activist was arrested by military personnel and imprisoned, and the Lincoln government ignored the writ of habeas corpus that was issued or refused to... uh, uh, abide by it and brought up all kinds of issues between the executive and, and judicial branches. One footnote to that that I found very interesting, uh, the Vallandigham case that follows later in the war, again, many listeners already know the the outline of the uh, you know, Clement Vallandigham, the Ohio politician who speaks out uh, against Lincoln and his policies and gets arrested and is exiled by Lincoln to the southern states. You note that in uh, in, in the case that goes to the Supreme Court uh, in Ex Parte of Landingham in 1864, the, the, there, Chief Justice Taney joins with the majority saying you don't have a uh, uh, any right to, to call for rid of habeas corpus against a military tribunal. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting that that Tony went both ways on that. Uh... Yeah, well, you have to understand that Vallandigham was actually raising rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a, he was part of a, a a vast conspiracy. I know mm-hmm. it, it may not have amounted to much in the end, but it was a conspiracy to um, raise a kind of little civil war. In uh, in Indiana and uh, Southern Illinois, so I mean, his arrest was part of a sort of a mass arrest. Um, mm. The question of Lincoln and civil liberties, yes, which is it's sort of um, a part of it. Um, that's one of the most controversial questions, not just for Civil War historians, but everyone who studies the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, what principally we're talking about. Uh, the presidency, because the president is both commander-in-chief and he is allowed in the Constitution to um, do whatever is necessary to put down civil insurrection. Um, well, how far does that allow you to go? Can you take away, for example, First Amendment rights? Mm-hmm. Uh, the right to um, assemble uh, peaceably, the right to petition, and most important, the freedom of the press. And um, Lincoln was not the most sensitive to unfavorable press coverage, but um, the Democratic press, small, uh, you know, parts of the, um, they were um, suspected of actually providing information to the enemy. So um, Lincoln is far less proactive in suppressing the federal press than um, U.S. Grant is, for example, who arrests um, correspondents who he thinks are spying. They're not, of course. What they're doing is they're going to send stories back 
about Union defeats to um, pro-Confederate uh, newspapers. So um, this is a time when uh, sort of uh, civil liberties, the way we conceive them, the importance of civil mm-hmm. liberties are, um, I won't say trampled on, but certainly curtailed. Well, um, the, look at World War One. You see the same thing happened with the right. Espionage Act and then the Sabotage Act, the Seditious Libel mm-hmm. Act. All of those acts um, said, well, you couldn't publish anything or give a speech that interferes with the draft. Well, I mean, when do you see the first draft? You see the first draft um, in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So the beginning of that kind of suppression is really... In the, uh, in the Civil War, and both sides are doing it, by the way. It's not just um, the federal government. No, I mean, there, um, there's a long it, tradition of suppression of free speech in, in the South if oh, it's yeah. anti-slavery. Oh, well, so, it, it, if you want to, it goes back to the Alien and Sedition Acts sure. of 1798 when the Federalists, mm-hmm. no, no, a bunch of lawyers, when Federalist lawyers who control Congress pass an act making criticism of the government illegal unless you can prove the truth of it. Well, you and I both know that political opinions are political opinions. It's very hard to prove that they're true. If you say, you know, John Adams is a rascal, how do you prove that (laughs) is true? But that was grounds for, I know it's okay to say that now. I don't think there are a lot of John Adams supporters out there. But um, We'll be getting email uh, all week. <laughs> someone, the, the, someone will email well, you saying, "What's that he said about John Adams?" <laughs> Let me ask. Uh, you mentioned the war power of the presidency and, and how it certainly tested with the uh, civil liberties questions. Certainly, the biggest single, most controversial, and, and probably most important use of Lincoln's war power uh, as a justification is for the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Let's start with the big question. Is is that justified? Uh, I mean, Lincoln is a lawyer, and he tries to, he writes a very legal document uh, in the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, well, understand, is he persuasive? Of all, that it affected no one. Mm-hmm. It was a confiscation of slaves from their owners in territories that were still in rebellion as of January 1st, 1863. So it applied to places where um, the federal government actually had no control. It did not apply to New Orleans, for example, that federal troops occupied, or to um, uh, other places, uh, for example, parts of Georgia, the coast of Georgia, that were in the hands of federal troops, because they weren't in, those places weren't in rebellion. So you, you have a, an emancipation proclamation that didn't actually emancipate anyone. Well, can I just push um, back on that? Just uh, and Mike Vorenberg and others make that same point, and I've always seen that the proclamation does, in fact, free those slaves who are certainly in in the limbo of if they're in Union contraband camps in the states that are still in rebellion with a very uncertain status. This clarifies their status, and it does, in fact. Uh, even before the September uh, issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, it is clear that um, uh, Halleck has told, the Commander-in-Chief has told um, Union officers that Mm -hmm. um, slaves who come into camp are contraband of war and they're not to be returned to their owners. Right. 
Um, the problem but who is, owns them now? Um, slaves who come into camp in places like Missouri and, and Kentucky, mm-hmm. and they're not actually contraband. So, but the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't apply to them. The key to the Emancipation Proclamation is um, something that people don't notice, but it comes right at the end. And it was the result of a lot of discussion in Lincoln's cabinet, and I spent quite a lot of time talking about it in the book. And that is that Lincoln says that those slaves who are freed as a result of this, when we do take that territory and they're freed, they will stay free. Yes. And that's news. Yeah, now, you can justify free. that in terms of international law. If you've been reading your Vatel, you can say that there are certain kinds of property that you can take from your enemy in the course of a war um, that you can then you know, turn to your own use or that you can, in the case of slaves, free. Mm-hmm. But here's the catch to that. Vatel is talking about war. He's not talking about civil insurrection. So, um, taking the property that your enemy uses to forward its war aims and converting it, in this case freeing the slaves when you take that territory in the South, assumes that the Civil War is not a domestic insurrection, it's a war between two sovereign states. And Lincoln never, ever agreed to that. He always regarded it as a domestic insurrection. So the Emancipation Proclamation is full of interesting, sometimes ironic contradictions. Hmm. There are other emancipations you talk about. Uh, You mentioned Patrick Claiborne uh, in the introduction. I think you lump him among among the obscure figures. And I thought, well, talk radio listeners, they know Patrick Claiborne. Uh, But among the general public, uh, it's pretty obscure. I suppose they do, or from (laughs) Ireland. Uh, But uh, (laughs) for the listeners who don't know, he's a Confederate general who talks about emancipating slaves to let them fight. Uh, How how does that, where where does that fit into your story? Uh, Is Claiborne a lawyer? He sent, yes, he was. Ah. He was a lawyer, mm-hmm. and a very successful lawyer, and a politician, too. Mm-hmm. A lawyer-politician. In fact, I use that hyphenate throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sends this uh, up, the ch- up the chain of command. Um, and when it reaches Jefferson Davis, and Jefferson Davis is sort of like Philip II of Spain, he sees everything. He insists <laughs> upon seeing everything. Um, you know, he sort of regards himself as as the Generalissimo. Um, and he, he puts it in the desk drawer and closes the desk drawer. He doesn't want anyone to discuss this. Later on, after Claiborne has died, he's been killed in battle, he's going to take it out again. And he's going to say, you know, to his cabinet, maybe we should think about this. I know Emory Thomas, who was my colleague, and he's he still lives here in town part of the time, part of the time up in Virginia. Um, he wrote about that in his book on the Confederate Nation, um, about thinking about slaves who, male slaves, who served honorably in war, would be freed. 
And they could, and their families would be freed. I mean, when you think about that, you're taking away property. But um, the Confederate government had, for the past five years, from the beginning, been taking away property from people all the time. It's called sequestration. Mm-hmm. And, for example, if someone in the North owed you money, someone um, in Michigan owed someone in Georgia money, that debt was now owed to the Confederacy. Presumably mm-hmm. would be would be imposed after the Confederacy had won its independence. Um, if you had property that you were holding that belonged to someone um, in the... Uh, uh, the United States, that mm-hmm. property was taken by the Confederate government and used for the war effort. It was a way to raise funds to supply the army, um, pay for the government. So and, the and Confederate government the, was taking away yeah. property from private citizens all the time. It took right. away slaves from people and said, we're going to put these slaves to work on building fortifications around Richmond fortifications are in New Orleans. We're going to take your slaves away from you. Mm -hmm. So a secession movement that was begun in order to protect slave property from those northern abolitionists ends up being the largest, even before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the largest taker away of private property from southern slaveholders. Like that irony? It's it's a fascinating one. The the, uh, war has a dynamic of its own that goes to uh, consequences no one anticipates when it starts. Uh, we have just right. a minute left. I want to uh, ask about your conclusion where you point out that in many ways the Civil War can be seen as a victory for law and the lawyers, that it never degenerates into this atavistic violence with no uh, no thought about what this is all for. That That there is a legal framework imposed on it uh, in all but its very worst moments. It's also good for legal business. Yes. Yeah, it generates an awful lot of cases. For bringing up, for bringing lawsuits, which is what law, lawyers, um, this is before the hours billing system is when you bill for the amount of paper that you submitted. So um, it's good for lawyers in many ways, but it's also good for the nation. Mm-hmm. And there's also a vision of a new kind of constitution that actually empowers people. It doesn't just, um, you know, uh, keep order. It also mm-hmm. provides entitlements. It helps people. Yeah, with with uh, the Reconstruction amendments and, and the death of what you call the the old constitution, you really do see a That's right a, a remarkable change uh, in the post war era. Of freedom. Someone said, well, this, that. I can't remember who said, new birth. That's a good line. Yeah, I'd have to use that in lecture sometime. Uh, well, this is a really interesting book. As someone who practiced law for a few years before going the historical route, I found it very interesting. But you don't have to have done that, listeners, uh, to, to gain the benefit of seeing how legal culture that we so often deride and make fun of uh, uh, with lawyer jokes uh, actually is a significant component of the Civil War era and, and of the outcome. Uh, so it, it, it's a worthwhile uh, it's a worthwhile book, I'll, I'll put it that way. And uh, Peter, I, I want to thank you for being, being on the show tonight, and especially uh, with the weather there. I hope 
hope you'd stay dry and, and unflooded and uh, and everything uh, keeps working. Okay. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.